Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. African-American professionals are underrepresented in science fields, and schools, educators, and STEM-related organizations across the country are collaborating to address the shortage. One of those leading the charge, Savannah State's Dr. Carla Sue Marriott, is our latest Difference Maker. The Difference Maker podcast is presented by the Savannah Economic Development Authority. digital team at savannahnow.com, this is Difference Makers, a podcast featuring interviews with Savannah's community leaders about what they do, how they do it, and why. I'm Adam Van Brimmer, and joining me for this episode is Dr. Carla Sue Marriott, who helped found one of the nation's most recognized university forensic science programs at Savannah State University, and who is championing efforts to get more African Americans and people of color to pursue science careers. She's also a participant in a public forum focused on the COVID-19 vaccine, and offers insights on how the vaccine was developed and why many Americans, particularly African Americans and Latinos, are hesitant to get vaccinated. Here's the interview with Difference Maker Carla Sumeria. Very pleased to be joined on this episode of the Difference Makers podcast by Dr. Carla Sumeriat of Savannah State. She is a full professor of chemistry and the interim chair and forensic science program coordinator over at Savannah State. And as we'll talk about later, the founder of the forensic science program at Savannah State, which is a bit of a groundbreaking program. And, and we're going to get to all of that. But the, the big hook for having Dr. Marriott on this week is the fact that uh, this week, the Savannah Morning News, along with Savannah Tribune and a couple of local radio stations, E93 and uh, 103.9 are collaborating on a public forum that will have a discussion of the COVID-19 vaccine, kind of fact and fiction. Uh, I think most people realize now that there, there are a fair amount of people out there that are hesitant regarding the COVID-19 vaccine, and it seems to be particularly pronounced in, in communities of color. So Dr. Marriott and I are going to to talk about that and, and kind of tease a little bit to to the public forum that's going on. and. Uh, but before we do that, well, we start Difference Makers by getting to know our guest a little bit better. And uh, let's, let's go ahead and do that with Dr. Marriott, who is, uh, she's not a Savannah native. She's a transplant, and she's a transplant from a, from a, a pretty unique place, and, and that's Jamaica. So, Dr. Marriott, can you kind of, in a nutshell, kind of walk us through uh, how, how a girl from Jamaica made it to Savannah and what it was like growing up there and what were your influences to get you to go into the sciences as you have? Well, I have to tell you, I feel like a native now. Um, I've been here for, I think uh, in March will be 15 years. Right. So I love Savannah. Um, definitely the Savannah community has embraced me and um, I really enjoy uh, the eclectic environment. And so when you start out your career in Savannah, it's, it's very hard to think of um, going anyplace else. So it's a bad first job. Right. I'm telling you, coming out of a research lab in Clemson 
landing in Savannah, you know, it's just a wonderful, um, been a wonderful experience for me. Yeah. Yeah. Cause Clemson um, so, is, Clemson's from, a pretty place too. Uh, I mean, yeah. Jamaica, Clemson, yeah. Savannah. I, I think you're, you're, you know, ocean, Caribbean sea, lake. And, and ocean again. And ocean here. Yeah. So, um, I, I love that too. So the first thing I, I did when I, um, drove into Savannah, uh, on victory, I went straight to Tybee and, uh, um, uh, and looked at the beach and touched the water and all of that, you know, just to say I'm here and it's wonderful to have the ocean again. Right. So I was raised in Jamaica, born and bred in Jamaica. I went to the University of the West Indies. I did my degree in biochemistry and a minor in chemistry, but it really wasn't a minor because I did so many chemistry courses. Uh, it would also classify as enough credits for a major. It's just that I didn't do it in the exact order or the way that they wanted me to do it. Sure. So I, it was almost like a double major. So I was really interested in organic synthetic chemistry. So I did my PhD in that. But before I joined um, the research lab to do my PhD, I did a stint, a one-year stint at the forensic science lab in Jamaica. So I worked there in the biology section um, they have like a biology and a chemistry section. And um, so I chose to work in the biology section because I figured it would be more fun and more interesting and more di um, a lot of different cases you would run into. And definitely it was. I enjoyed my time there. I learned a lot. And I guess that was the inspiration behind the forensic science program here now that, um, that I developed at Savannah State because we also have a forensic science program with concentration in chemistry and concentration in biology. So I guess, you know, that experience I brought uh, outside together. of my PhD. After I got that, I met a professor from Clemson at a natural product symposium on the island, Jamaica. They have it every other year. And I was giving a talk and he came up to me afterwards and we started talking and um, I went on just from that discussion of networking um, to do postdoc after I got my PhD at his lab in Clemson. Mm -hmm. I was very excited. And uh, I went on to work on, believe it or not, cannabinoids. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it, The irony, uh, right? The irony, cannabinoids um, from the marijuana plant. So what we did was we actually made synthetic cannabinoids in the lab um, that look Exactly, um, they're from the same molecular structure as Delta 9 THC, and also some had different structures, but we were targeting, targeting the cannabinoid receptors in the body for medicinal purposes only. Right. Um, and we wanted to make these molecules so that they would target a specific receptor in the body, CB2, so that would lessen the high, the euphoric high that people would get when they take these medicinal cannabinoids. And so, when we do that, then we would create medicine that people are less likely to abuse. Right. Um, moving on from Clemson, I left Clemson and arrived at Savannah State in 2006. And it's been a wonderful experience up to um, now where we're having this discussion. Um, one patent under my belt and uh, still working in the central nervous system research funding from NIH, NSF to um, train our students so that we can have more underrepresented individuals in the biomedical research. Mm. Um, so it's been very productive. Uh, the forensic science program has taken off from six students to over a hundred. 
And uh, we have our students working at the ATF, working with the FBI in graduate school, getting graduate degrees, etc. It's been a great experience. We even set a, um, an experiment up into space at the um, on the International Space Station. Oh, okay. That was in 2014. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can say Savannah has been an awesome experience. Yeah. I want to dive deep on a lot of those things in a minute, but you were telling me before we hit the record button that your interest in science goes back to, to when you were a little girl and a lot of family connections. What, what, what sparked that, that flame to, to really chase the sciences? Uh, well, you know, I used to watch a lot of spy TV stuff <laughs> and I tried to create my own satellite uh, and my dad saw this and he would get me some spy equipment. Yeah, I, I would never actually, um, it didn't work, but it came close to it. My uncles, I have five uncles on my mother's side, and uh, they were always into different types of experiments. So there were engineers, medical doctors, uh, um, and so we would do physics experiments. So my favorite subject actually in, in high school was physics. And um, it's later on when I went to college that uh, I started to get less interested in physics because it became too abstract and I couldn't see how it was related to the real world. And so I guess that's what right now, what drives me as a teacher. I try to make sure that whatever I'm teaching in the classroom, students can understand how they're relevant and they can translate into the real world. I think that's very important. Um, as a chemist, I don't make molecules just for the fun of making a new molecule, but I would like my molecule to have some application, some medicinal value, hopefully good, but um, at least have the potential to be used for research and we can learn a lot more about the body. But I think it's good to have a good family um, reinforcing a background, which was what worked for me, I guess. And they were in a lot of uh, professional science fields, right? Your, your father was a, was an optometrist? An optician, optometrist, yes. Right, right. And yeah. your uncles, your uncles did, the uncles that did all the physics experiments, what were there, what were they doing for a living? Uh, engineering, et cetera. They actually, I, I, everybody's, um, all parents want their kids to become doctors. I, you know, but I wasn't really interested in being a doctor unless really my parents would push me to definitely do that. I really like just being a, um, doing research, going to school, um, being in the research lab. So uh, my focus was in more in that in that direction, and so I, I really sought out being in the lab, and I stayed in there long enough to get a PhD. Right. So uh, growing up on a Caribbean island, I was I've, I've been blessed in my life to spend a couple of years on a Caribbean island and, and watch the children and just you know access to the water and the beach, and it's just it, it just seems like you know, if somebody grew up in the Midwest on the farm, it's completely wild to think about growing up like that. How much, uh, how much of a blessing was that for, for you? It was, and you don't really appreciate it until you leave it. So it's always summer there. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you never have to really worry about winter. However, in June and July, it gets sweltering hot. And um, most people uh, don't understand that we don't have central AC so you might have like one little AC unit and usually it's in your bedroom. So the rest of the time you're just sweating. Uh, so you would have a fan and you would crack the windows open. Um, mercifully, 
um, at nighttime, the temperature would drop significantly. And so you would have this cool, nice island breeze, right? So um, that was fun. That was good. And our homes are built differently, mm-hmm. um, built with cinder blocks and the roofs are, are built differently. So to withstand hurricane, hurricanes, right? right? Because yep. we're on a small island, so we can't evacuate. Where are we going to go to? <laughs> we have to bat down. So hurricane is um, one of the things that we always watch out for, yeah. you know, and um, that's what growing up on an island is really all about watching out for hurricanes, going to the beach, which we had fun doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, also, uh, we or major university, there is the University of the West Indies, which has different campuses. Also, you have them um, in a different such as there's one in Barbados, one in Trinidad, and they have different specialties. So um, that's kind of what it's like growing up on an island. Yeah, I, I don't know what your experience was when you, when you first moved to Savannah and there was a hurricane warning or a hurricane evacuation, but I, I moved from the Virgin Islands to Savannah, and two weeks after I got here, they ordered a mandatory evacuation for a hurricane. I was like, evacuation? Where are we going? But I know. Of course, I it's know. different. The surge here is, you know, we have to worry about surge here, whereas where I was on St. Thomas, you didn't have to worry about surge. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, definitely, um, I still, it took me a while to understand that you have to um, evacuate. Right. Initially, when I got here, though, there wasn't much of that. I didn't notice. It's just in the recent years, the last five years or so. Now it's become, you know, I get anxious during the hurricane season here now. Right. You know, so those are things that uh, concern me. And so I actually moved a little bit inland because of that. Yeah, you're looking for the high ground. I understand yeah. completely. You're listening to the Difference Makers podcast and a discussion with Savannah State's Dr. Carla Marriott. Before we continue, let's pause and recognize the Difference Makers presenting sponsor and a real difference maker in our community, the Savannah Economic Development Authority. The team at CETA is pushing to make Savannah a great place to work and live. CETA is committed to creating, growing, and attracting jobs and investment in the Savannah region. Whether a business looking to relocate to the Savannah area or an existing business ready to grow and expand, CETA is the centrifuge of a propeller, making the connections, helping propel the business to success. Learn more about the Savannah Economic Development Authority and what they do in the Savannah community by visiting CETA.org. Now, back to the interview with Dr. Carla Sumeria. Let's talk a little bit about this event this week and uh, the whole uh, the, the struggle of whether you want to say it's a, a struggle with messaging or a struggle with trust or a struggle with, with what have you in terms of, of getting more people to want to take the vaccine. I think it's, it's pretty well established that probably the quickest way for, for us, for Americans to get out of the COVID uh, to really cut the numbers and, and, and really get past and get back to quote unquote normal is to get as many people vaccinated as quickly as possible to get to that herd immunity. And I know that you, you've been very involved in, in looking at this issue and talking to folks on this issue and, where do you think the, the real struggle is and, and how do we get past it? Yes, the mistrust is there and it's valid um, because it wasn't so long ago that we have um, experimental projects, unethical experimental projects so such as Tuskegee, the Guatemala, um, etc. cetera. Um, so it's not invalid, but right now 
Um, when we have certain things in place, such as IRB boards, inst institutional review boards, which are you know, helpful um, to prevent unethical scientific research that involves human subjects, right? So, um, and we have the scientific technology. Some people are concerned about the speed with which the vaccine was developed. Yes, um, we have the technology though. The scientific community has the technology and the brain power to be able to do um, development of vaccines in the period of time that it did it. Um, also, we're concerned about the variants that are showing up, you know, as the vac um, as the virus jumps from one host to the next, there's gonna, the, the virus is copying and replicating. Um, there's gonna be some changes in the copies, right? Which brings about the variants. And now we have the more contagious um, variants out there. So we, we would prefer that we have some defense against that um, as we see um, infections start to pick up. Um, there is some um, from if you look and if you listen to the news or look at the news, uh, um, you'll hear that there is a decrease, some, uh, some notable decrease in infection rates. However, um, we're all in this together and for it to be effective so that we can go back to somewhat of whatever this new normal is going to be, we need as much people to be informed about uh, the decisions that they're making. Whether you decide to take the vaccine or not, both are decisions. You're deciding not to, or you're deciding to. I live with my elderly mother, she's 78 years old, and I decided that for us, um, the best thing would be is to get the vaccine. So I called and, and eventually we got through and we got our first shots. So I called on her behalf for her to get the shot. And they're like, well, you live with her, you're her caretaker. And I was like, yes. And so they're like, well, you know, you should get the shot. I said, okay, fine, I'll get the shot too. Because I work in and the environment, I'm a university professor. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm vulnerable to a situation where I could be exposed. And so I would not feel good coming home and knowing that I was the source of passing that on to my elderly mother, you know, and I just don't know, we could be fine. And then we could have some underlying issues that we don't know how we're going to react to the virus. So it's a risk to, you know, not take the vaccine. It's a risk to take the vaccine. Um, but you have to take calculated risks in life. Mm -hmm. And I think that you have to look at your environment, the infection rate in your community. You have to look at your household and see who you're living with and what decision you think is a good informed decision for you rather than to just um, focus on the past without looking at where we are now, how far we've come and looking at the data and the information that you've been presented with and who presents this information to you. You mentioned the, the speed with which the vaccine was developed. And I can remember when we first started talking about the development of the vaccine, everybody's like, well, it's going to be years just because it always has been years. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden it accelerates and, and, and they waive a lot of rules so that they can do some 
some clinical trials, uh, you know, the proper term congruently. And, and all of a sudden it does roll out quickly. So it was one of those things that initially we're, I think the, the, the government and the, the media uh, was trying to kind of get the message out here to, to set expectations or the government was trying to set expectations. And then when they got it going faster, they didn't know how to undo the whole, well, actually your expectations should be X instead of Y. And how much of that was, how much of it was a, was a, was a marketing or a messaging problem, at least initially, you think? The messaging does change. Um, and well, I wasn't in on those discussions, so right. I have no right. idea what's, what's the, the, the train of thought behind it. Right. But uh, um, I think that sometimes why things go slower than they should or that or than they or that they don't go as fast as they could is because sometimes you have a lot of red tape and other things need to be done in the middle. But when you have a pandemic and your scientific community, all that power and those resources are focused on just this pandemic, things can move pretty fast. Right. And so for us, we might say, oh, that's ridiculously fast. How can it be done that way? It's probably quite doable, right? It's just that people are now focused on just this one thing. How many times have you been multitasking, right? And everything goes along. That's a good measure. But when you stop and you focus on one thing only, how fast that goes. And so I think that when you have those resources all coming together for one cause, and I think, and, and with the technology that we do have and how far we've come in the scientific community, yes, we can go that fast. I believe that they can go that fast. And I think that all the, um, regulations the, um, that are put in place are maintained and we have good reason to be able to trust um, the vaccine. Uh, but once again, everything is a risk, right? Life is, life is um, full of uncertainties. Right. But for me, once again, I was willing to take that risk because I would rather um, risk the vaccine rather than COVID. You get the feeling that there's a lot of people that are hesitant about it, but are open to having their minds changed. And and if so, is it just going to be seeing officials, public officials, friends, family, other people take it that eventually will will get uh, those that are hesitant to be more willing to try it? Or how, how do you see that playing out over the next couple of months? Well, I don't think it's necessarily about changing people's minds. Mm-hmm. I think that people are probably in limbo and haven't really made a decision. And if they're given the appropriate information from reputable sources, and if they consult their doctors, um, they will make um, an informed decision on behalf of themselves and their loved ones and their community. Uh, So I think that uh, the focus really um, is not necessarily to change people's minds, is to get them to think about the situation critically and make a decision based on that on those that that information that is presented to them. The other piece of this, of course, particularly with, with people of color, is that the history is we got kind of a sordid history here. And uh, I think you put it best before we hit um, before we hit the button is talking about what happened in history may lock us out of good therapeutics. Exactly. Um, how does thing like the Tuskegee syphilis experiments, the, the, the uh, and Guatemala the, too, Guatemala, the, the situation that happened here in the fifties with the mosquito, the big, the big buzz. buzz that we had in the paper over the weekend. And I think a lot of people kind of got wide eyed because they didn't realize that 
that, 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 yeah, that didn't happen. And, yeah, and if I didn't, um, you know, read enough of the scientific information and know a little bit about how the, the intricacies of the system in terms of IRBs, et cetera, mm-hmm. things like that, I would be very hesitant. <laughs> you know, I would be very hesitant. Um, but thank goodness we have systems in place that work on preventing unethical scientific research. And also, you know, it was way back in, in the day during slavery, there was this African slave Onesimus, um, that he was a slave in Boston and he was the one to teach doctors in Boston about variolation to protect individuals from smallpox. And when that was presented to the community, there was a big uproar too, but uh, to naturally let smallpox um, infect individuals, it was like one in seven would die. And to do variolation, which he taught the doctors in Boston, it was a rate of uh, one in 40 would die. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's still, you know, um, risky, but to be open to, to new ways of doing things. And right there, that was an African slave that, that taught individuals in Boston. So people of color have always been doing science and always um, have been making contributions to science. It's just that um, it's not been very well documented. And over time we hear all of these things coming to light, but it's certainly not necessarily being taught in the history classes in school. Um, Science is for everybody and not just for any um, particular ethnic group. And people of color have always been contributing to science, always been believing in science and always doing science. You hit on an, an important point there, and that's education. And especially in today's world where uh, yeah, access to the Internet gives you access to all kinds of great resources, but also all kinds of misleading or even false resources. How much mm-hmm. of that, how much of that is, is, a, is a hurdle that needs to be crossed as people are looking at this situation? It's an absolute huge hurdle. Um, because it's, it, um, this misinformation is done for, it sometimes is for competitive gain um, by other countries, et cetera. Um, and they market it to the most vulnerable um, set of individuals that are more likely to want to believe that misinformation about uh, um, vaccines. Um, just a one case of a death from a vaccine is enough to, to to support once again, to reinforce that one should not take the vaccine. But once again, uh, where would you rather take your risk? Uh, risk of contracting COVID and not necessarily knowing um, how you, you are gonna react to it or to take a vaccine um, that uh, some trials have been done and some information is known about it and of its efficacy and effectiveness against the different strains. The variants are there. Uh, they're increasing um, the infectious rate. Uh, so we need to think about all these different things, weigh the pros and cons, taking the vaccine or not taking the vaccine. Um, what's your resource? Check out your resource. Is your resource reputable? Don't be afraid to read the scientific literature. Wikipedia is not where doctor. you should go. Ask your physician, ask your doctor <laughs> about it, ask questions. Um, don't just accept things just because it's what you want to hear. 
just because it reinforces you not doing something. Well, in today's world, the echo, everybody wants to be in their echo chamber. So that may be one of the, the biggest challenges uh, of all. I want to transition slowly away from that and, and at the same time, though, circle back on something. And, and we were talking earlier about the, um, the, the pace of the vaccine development and uh, how, um, what it says about medicine today. And that's something that struck me is, is, you know, if we can make this kind of progress and everybody says that this virus is a, a relatively simple virus, it's not, it's not something that, that was a, a really hard to challenge once it was mapped and everybody understood what it was. But does this experience in terms of finding a, a vaccination for this disease, how does this translate going forward to, to other research that is done in, in biomedical and, and whether it's treatments, vaccines, what have you, is this a bit of a game changer in the way people think about the development of, of treatments and vaccines? Yes, I think um, definitely because um, for one, the Pfizer um, and the Moderna uh, vaccine all, all rely, on, both rely on messenger RNA. Um, you know, I'm not an expert on that area, but messenger RNA is uh, the vaccine with messenger RNA and how they use that type of technology that they've learned is certainly um, new and groundbreaking for us. Uh, so, and they're not injecting live virus into you <clears throat> because basically um, they're doing coding to create the spike protein so that your body has an immune response to that. Uh, so no live virus is injected with these two um, vaccines. So I think, you know, the more people learn about it as well, um, I think it's um, uh, groundbreaking and uh, wonderful technology that is definitely uh, a game changer for us. I, I think at the same time, though, and, and please disagree if you do, is, is we, we have to be a little bit cautious by this because people are going to look at this and say, if we can do this this quickly, why can't we make faster advances on cancer or on central nervous system disorders that you study? It, is, it, is, it, is it important on people to understand the, the differences so that those, we talked about expectations, so the expectations stay reasonable? Well, this is one virus. And even though it does change into different variants as it jumps from host to host, all these multiple replications, it's still one virus. But cancer now, you can have all these different types of cancer. So it's a much more complicated um, situation. Um, also, what initiates that type of cancer, you know, it, it, that can be complicated as well. So yes, you have to focus on the different types of cancer and how people approach different types of cancer. Yes, can you focus on breast cancer and try to resolve that? Yes, I think over time, yes. But cancer as a whole in general, uh, I think that's a, a large um, challenge and probably, you know, is, better, it, is how we tackle it is one thing at a time. Again, you are listening to a conversation with Savannah State's Dr. Carla Sumeria on the Difference Makers podcast. While she takes a short break, I have a call to action for you. Subscribe to savannahnow.com. More and more lately, I'm told by podcast listeners and casual newspaper readers, I like what you guys are doing over there. How do I support you? The answer is simple. Subscribe to savannahnow.com. And if you are already a subscriber, do business with our advertisers. We aren't public radio or a nonprofit journalism outfit. 
We offer great journalism, and we charge you for the ability to consume it. That way we can produce more of it. Go to savannahnow.com or download our app and see our product for yourself. Then hit the subscribe button to get full access for just a pittance. Now, back to the Difference Makers interview. I want to spend the, the balance of the discussion talking a little bit about your work at Savannah State and, uh, and some of the things that uh, with the chemistry department in terms of biomedical, trying to get underrepresented demographics, people of color largely, uh, into biomedical fields, forensic sciences, uh, chemistry. What have you, in your 15 years there, what have you, what have you seen? What do you like about the momentum we are seeing in getting more diversity into those fields and, and what still needs to be done? Yes. Um, well, we have received a large amount of funding over the years. Savannah State has been very successful. Um, the College of Sciences and Technology and the Department of Chemistry and Forensic Science in collaboration with or the biology department have done a really, really good job of getting funding from the NIH and the NSF, DOD, NASA. Um, particularly the NIH, I can speak to a grant that I currently have. It's called the United Esteemed a desire program. Basically it's a um, biomedical research um, training program. So we actually recruit students as freshmen coming in to Savannah State and they declare themselves as either chemistry, um, forensic science, biology, or math majors. And we take seven scholars per year and we um, do a summer bridge program with them where we expose them to our research labs. They um, participate in workshops, et cetera. And then they can shadow professors in the lab and conduct research um, during the following summer. Um, they conduct their own research. They go to conferences. Uh, they get $12,000 for the academic year um, for two years. So this is towards um, retention and progression towards graduation. So keeping them in the STEM field and then giving them access to all these biomedical resources, then we support them to go externally as well to other institutions over the summer. Um, we give them all the resources to apply to these internship opportunities um, at other institutions. We collaborate with some of these other institutions. Um, so at that point, they can really network and look to those networking contacts for places that they will potentially go once they graduate from Savannah State. So they might go there for graduate study, um, graduate study in chemistry, biology, biomedical sciences, um, all these different um, fields of STEM at the graduate school level. So we want them to move on to ultimately a PhD. And once they're in the biomedical field, then they can contribute to biomedical research just like um, they experienced at Savannah State or at one of these summer research sites. Um, and what would be nice too is, uh, is if some of them not only became medical doctors, but they got their MD, PhD, which is a medical doctor that also contributes to scientific research, biomedical research. Um, a lot of these um, students absolutely are in interested in research for one reason or another. And they'll explain that to you in their application with their letter. They'll explain what got them involved in wanting to do a particular area. Um, since COVID 
and a lot of them are interested in um, studying viruses, mm-hmm. uh, things like that, or being in the medical field in general. Um, so I think that's good. We always have to have um, inclusivity and a good representation of all peoples in, in the medical field so that we can feel a level of uh, representation. It's always having, you know, a feeling of representation that somebody there is kind of walking in your shoes as well. And so they have similar experiences and they're able to relay that within their team of investigators, for example. If you have nobody that represents you there, then it's easy for people to not have that experience to relay to the team, Right. right? So... For example, you know, if you're creating a product for women and your investigation team only contains men, then that's an issue. (laughs) So who there is walking in the shoes or the heels of women to explain to the team? Well, you know, so I think that a lot of investigators have, you know, the best interests at heart but sometimes they have not that experience. And so we always, it's not that we just wanna be in there, is that you have to have people with those experiences representing the individuals that you wanna take care of. So that's a, that's a part of these programs. They're focused at um, getting underrepresented individuals into biomedical research and not necessarily medical sciences, in terms of becoming a a medical doctor, we like that too, but we want you to be a part of the research that's going on, right? And so that you can say, oh, I have a family member that's doing that research. Let them explain it to you and to let us regain that trust again um, in scientific research. So I think that the more we have programs like that, that is creating a pipeline. Right, right. Yeah, that, slowly we can regain that trust again. That's right. Yeah. And creating those pathways is is so important just because like you said, there's there's a lot of places where you can kind of fall off that path along the way, but if there's a concentrated effort, Mm -hmm. you can kind of push kids through. And and if if they've got the, if they've got the ambition, then go ahead and push them through and do everything you can. Um, Or students at Savannah State, they are so talented and Mm -hmm. so curious. They want to do so many things at a small HBCU that is a public HBCU, don't, we don't have that access to a lot of funds readily. Nobody's giving us large gifts, right? You see some other HBCUs getting $40 million and such, but um, you know, a small public HBCU like Savannah State is not getting those large gifts. Um, And so we have to actually write competitive grants to the NIH and NSF just to do what we, would like to do and um, have access to all sorts of elaborate equipment. As you can see, some of them behind right, me, right, right, aren't you, right? right? Yeah. All of them hard earned writing grants to the NSF and NIH. Right. Um, and what I see the students doing with it makes me even more motivated to continue doing that. Um, I see what the students do with all this technology. I see what the students do in virtual reality. My forensic science students doing virtual reality. We set up experiments in virtual reality. We're recreating crime scenes in virtual reality. So when I see that we're doing things that 
you know, other R1 research one institutions are not doing. Um, these students walk around and they know that their program is excellent. And I love doing that. Talk about that program. I know that it's a particular point of pride for you and oh, yeah. in the, the state. It's it, Is it the only one in the state? Tech and Georgia oh. don't have it? No, no, no. No, but are you sure you want me to talk about it? Because I can talk forever. Go for it. Yeah, I think people are very curious about it, for sure. Okay, so um, actually, um, I was hired initially in 2006 to develop what was then a a minor in forensic science into a major. So I came in um, and started that. It was approved in 2011 by um, the University System Board of Regents for us to now offer a degree in forensic science with two concentrations, forensic chemistry and forensic biology. Once again, that comes from my background at the forensic science lab in Jamaica, where we had two departments, chemistry and biology. So I I modeled kind of the program based on that. Um, And it's so rigorous that the students are required to do um, organic one and two, calculus one and two, statistics, et cetera. So that means that from this program, they not only get exposed to forensic science courses, but they have all the science background that they can go into medicine. They can go into graduate school for chemistry or biology. And now we've added a lot of technology. We have all the technology, chemistry, genetic um, technology. We have the latest rapid hit DNA technology. Um, We have virtual reality. Um, we're the only um, undergraduate um, degree program in the world, I believe, um, that has a virtual reality training ground for forensic science students. And we can go in there and recreate blood spatter um, cases uh, where we can go in there and do high velocity um, blood stain pattern analysis. And that has worked out really, really nicely as a teaching moment for us. And we're looking actually to publish some of those results. Um, Also, our students, they can go anywhere. Uh, Like I said, uh, they're working for the FBI, ATF. Um, We have a certificate in virtual forensic science. Um, We also have a lot of high-tech equipment in the chemistry lab. Some of them are behind me right there. We have LCMS, GCMS, um, NMR. Uh, tabletop NMRs um, because they've miniaturized everything um, these days. So there is everything that they could possibly need um, in this program. Now that virtual reality has taken off so much in forensic science, we're looking to expand the application of virtual reality in chemistry and biology. So we have a new NSF grant that the purpose is to do just that. So instead of waiting until you get to a 4,000 level forensic science class to experience virtual reality, we want you to be able to experience virtual reality at the principles of chemistry one level. That's a freshman coming in. So this will help in keeping students stimulated in STEM. So we're retaining them and moving them, progressing them onto graduation. Now, what happens when you go into virtual reality and a molecule is right there in your face. Uh, You are standing within the DNA molecule. You're building your own molecule. You're doing molecular docking. 
Now, this is like when you have a receptor in the body and you dock the molecule within the receptor. You can do that. Uh, you can take a class of students in virtual reality with you because up to like, if you use a software from Nano, which we have that, then you can take your whole class in virtual reality with you. So yes, it requires a lot of accessories like your VR headgear, um, fancy computers, et cetera. And that's where the NSF funding and funding comes in, right? So um, money matters. And so, like I said, we're a small HBCU. So how we are able to bring the, this type of technology to our students in the classroom that they love so much is by actually writing grants that uh, have a high success rate of getting funded. And it helps too that people are attracted to it, right? You said you went from a handful of students 10 years ago to a hundred yeah. and some odd today, right? We started out in 2011 with six students and now we have over a hundred students right. um, in the program. So yeah. I think we, we tie for the second largest in the College of Sciences and Technology. We tie with computer sciences. Right. The university system uh, appreciates that too. And I'm sure that helps as well, but it was great learning about all of this, all of this with you today. And I, I really appreciate uh, your contributions on this virus panel. And I hope that, I hope that we make some, some ground and maybe not change some minds, but maybe open some minds in, in yeah, terms of this exactly. virus and uh, all the best with the programs. And as a, as a parent of two children that, any of them have interest in forensic science, I'm pointing them your way. All right, wonderful. Thank you. That's all for this episode of Difference Makers. Thanks to Savannah State's Carla Sue Marriott and to our presenting sponsor, the Savannah Economic Development Authority. Tap into the Difference Makers archives anytime on your favorite podcast app to hear interviews with more of Savannah's community leaders, such as the Asabal Island Foundation's Elizabeth DuBose, Savannah political icon Al Scott, and Georgia Southern Athletic Director Jared Benko. Difference Makers is a production of the Savannah Morning News and SavannahNow.com. On behalf of myself and producer Zach Dennis, thank you for listening. gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left listen to where secrets go to die the disappearance of Derek Hennigan from the Detroit Free Press a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula available on Apple Spotify Freep.com or wherever you get your podcasts